The God of the Bible is an infinite yet personal God who loves his people and keeps his promises. God answers prayer so that everyone will know that he alone is God. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Thank you all for your prayers. I can uh, see you with at least one eye. Um, so it's good to be here. Uh, laying face down for six days, uh, I don't recommend it. If you have to do it, you have to do it. But anyway, we're grateful to be here. If you open your Bibles, please, to 1 Kings 8. Fellow students, we're going to continue. In the book of Kings, we're looking at the life of Solomon. Solomon has been anointed king over Israel in his father David's place. David reigned for 40 years. And last week, we looked at the inauguration, if you will, a power transition, the succession plan that almost didn't happen. Solomon, in the, in the subsequent couple of years, executed some internal enemies that had tried to uh, destroy him and take over the kingdom. And as you recall, at the very beginning of Solomon's reign, God appeared to Solomon in a dream. And God gave him a very unusual request. He commanded Solomon, he said, ask me for whatever you want me to do for you. And we mentioned last week, to, for God to give you an open-ended checkbook is a, a remarkable thing. Uh, Solomon wisely asked for wisdom. He asked for wisdom to discern justice so that he could rule wisely and well over God's people. God was very pleased with that request and, and said, Solomon, I'm going to grant you wisdom that's unparalleled in human history. You're going to be the wisest person that ever lived. And furthermore, I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for, wealth and fame and those kinds of things. And uh, God did that. Chapter 4, uh, we're not going to go through that, but it records Solomon's national administration. Solomon reigned over the largest land extent of the Israeli empire that uh, has ever been uh, in history. It literally almost fulfilled God's promise to Abraham about the land that he would be ruling over. So chapter 4 records that administration that was required to rule over that. Today we're going to take a look at the fact that Solomon's uh, father, David, had planned to build a temple for Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he had amassed a massive amount of materials for that construction. As you recall, God had told David that he was not the one to build the temple because he was a man of war and he was a man of bloodshed. But Solomon's, David's son, was to be the one who was going to build the temple because he was a man of peace. So in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, Solomon was about 24 years old. He took the throne about age 20. Solomon begins a series of construction projects, and that's recorded in 1 Kings chapters 5 through 7. He built a temple to Yahweh, which took about seven years. He also built a palace, his throne room, a residence for his Egyptian wife, a complex of military administrative storage buildings, barracks, and courtyards, and that took literally 20 years to complete. Solomon was quite a builder. The temple, as you read the description in chapter 6 and 7, was a marvel of architectural beauty and aesthetic function. The Bible gives us a very detailed description of that in 1 Kings 6 and 7. The design for the temple did not come from Solomon, it came from David. And God had revealed to David the precise design specifications for the temple in 1 Chronicles 28. So when the temple was completed after seven years, Solomon assembled all of Israel for a dedication ceremony. And that's going to be the primary focus of our conversation today. This dedication ceremony was a two-week celebration, 14 days. The Ark of the Covenant, as you recall, was carried up from the city of David, from Jerusalem, into the temple by the priests, as prescribed by the law of Moses. The Israelites regarded the Ark of the Covenant as literally the throne of Yahweh, uh, the God of Israel. And the Ark was a gold-covered box with a gold-covered lid, and as you recall, that 
gold-covered box, the Ark of the Covenant, contained the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets that Moses came back from the top of Mount Sinai with that God had written the Ten Commandments on in his own finger. There was a meeting place between holy God and sinful people that took place between the two cherubims. Now, this Ark of the Covenant was a gold box, gold lid, and there were two cherubim, that's angels with wings outstretched, one angel on one side of the top of the cover, one angel on the other side of the top of the cover. So you have two angels with their wings coming over the middle of this box, the lid, and on top of that lid was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the place where God met with man, sinful man met holy God once a year. Recall that the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies once a year and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to atone to make payment for the sins of the people. Now this blood of animals that was sprinkled on the mercy seat was a foreshadowing of the blood of Jesus Christ who shed his blood to pay for the penalty for our sins. This dedication ceremony was really the installment, as Thomas Constable notes, uh, the enthronement of Yahweh as Israel's king. So as a symbol of the nation's dedication to Yahweh, it says that Solomon sacrificed so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted. That's a large number of animals sacrificed. And the priests placed the ark inside the most holy place as God commanded Moses. So let's pick up the narrative in 1 Kings 8 and beginning at verse 10. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, that's the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Here's the principle. The greatest gift God gives us is his presence with us. The greatest gift God gives us is his presence with us. So God indicated this pleasure with the temple, and he took possession of his dwelling place by blessing it with his presence. You know, God gives us many gifts. And you can probably count your blessings, and you could probably make quite a laundry list of all the good things God has done for you in the last year or two. And all those gifts are good gifts because God is a good God. But the greatest gift God gives is always himself. And he gives us himself through Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave us stuff. Is that what it says? That he gave us his only son. He gave us himself. That was the highest gift of all. And it says that the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, I want you to know the house of the Lord is not the primary issue here. The Lord of the house is what is supremely important here. You know, the purpose of a house is what? It's to be a dwelling place for people. It's to be a residence for people. The purpose of the house of the Lord in Israel was to be the place where God and humans would meet. That was the whole point of having a temple or a tabernacle, having the Ark of the Covenant, having the mercy seat. This is when God came down to earth literally and dwelled with people. That's Old Testament. Today, we live under another dispensation where God is far more intimate with us today than he was with them because then he came to the temple. Where is the temple of God today? In you, in me, in us. He comes and lives within us Permanently. So our intimacy with Almighty God through the indwelling Holy Spirit is absolutely far greater than what they had at that point in time. Now, 1 Chronicles 5 is a parallel passage here, and it notes that when the Levitical singers began to praise God with instruments and voices, God came into his house in a cloud. Psalm 22, 3 says what? God inhabits the praises of his people. I've often been interested or speculated, I guess, when we worship and our services, I wonder what would it be like if when we really worshiped with a full heart, with a whole heart, with full dedication, if we could see a cloud. 
as visible evidence of the presence of God. Now, we don't have to do that because we have the Holy Spirit permanently in us. We can't lose him. He can't lose us. He dwells in us permanently, whether we're aware of him or not, whether we're praising him or not, whether we're disobeying him or not, the Holy Spirit indwells us permanently. But in this case, the cloud came into the house, and that cloud concealed the Shekinah glory of God. And we're going to talk about that briefly. Shekinah literally means he caused to dwell or one who dwells. It has the idea of to reside, to permanently dwell in something. So the Shekinah glory of God has to do with God himself, the presence of God, dwelling with people. And this word glory, glory is a visible manifestation of who God is. His holiness, his goodness, his power, his wisdom, his mercy, etc. This Shekinah glory of God in the Bible shows up in multiple occasions. It first shows up in the burning bush. Remember Moses is shepherding Jethro's sheep, and he sees this burning bush, and this huge light, supernatural light, comes from this bush. The bush is on fire, and it doesn't burn up, and Moses goes, how come there's this bush on fire and it doesn't burn up? What he's seeing is the Shekinah glory of God. And God spoke to Moses from the bush in Exodus 3. We also see the Shekinah glory of God appearing to Israel as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. So they're walking through the wilderness. They spend 40 years. And over the top of them during the daytime is this huge Shekinah glory cloud that signals the presence of God. By the way, it also prevented them from getting sunburned. They're out, I'm kidding, I kid you not, they're out in the desert. You're in the Sinai Peninsula in July. You can turn to beef jerky in 30 minutes out there. So the Shekinah glory of God covered the camp and sheltered them from the sun by day, and then it was a pillar of fire by night. And it says whenever the cloud moved or the pillar of fire moved, they moved. Whenever the cloud sat still or the pillar sat still, they sat still. So that was evidence of the presence of God with them. When they got to Mount Sinai, the cloud came down on the top of Mount Sinai, earthquake, thunder, lightning, and God spoke to Moses from the cloud. When Moses erected the tent of meeting, God spoke face to face with Moses outside the camp. And it said when Moses went outside the camp, the cloud, the Shekinah glory of cloud of God came down and God spoke to Moses inside the tent from the cloud. And you say, well, how come there was a cloud? Well, Moses in Exodus 33 asked to see God's glory unconcealed by a cloud. He said, I'd like to see you face to face. And God said, you cannot see my face because if you see my face, you will not live. So without intermediation, without the cloud to protect Moses, sinful people would be instantly consumed by God's holiness. So God protects us from his holiness by that which would destroy him by veiling himself in a cloud. Now, when Jesus, God's son, came to earth, he came as a man. His glory was veiled in his flesh. You didn't see his glory very often on planet earth because he came looking like a human being. However, Peter, James, and John saw the Shekinah glory of God where? On the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember when they saw Jesus and it said, he shone as bright as the sun. That was the Shekinah glory of God. When Jesus was baptized, it says that God the Father spoke from what? A cloud and said, this is my beloved son. As a matter of fact, at the rapture, we will be caught up together what? In the Shekinah glory cloud of God to meet the Lord in the air. The disciples saw the Shekinah glory God at Christ's ascension, and we're going to see it again because it says Christ is going to come on what? The clouds of heaven. So our sin has separated us from holy God. We can't be in his holy presence without intermediation or we will die. So Jesus came, the perfect God-man, he came to reconcile our broken relationship with God by paying the penalty for our sin by dying in our place. Since he took our sin and gave us his righteousness, we can now have a personal face-to-face -face relationship with God through Christ, which is absolutely astonishing. 
Jesus said in John 14, 9, you want to know what the Father looks like? Look at me. What did he say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In the Old Testament, that was incomprehensible. You couldn't see the Father. You'd be struck dead. We live after the cross, and Jesus is the intermediary between us and the Father, and he himself is fully God, and he lives inside us. This is amazing stuff, really. We take it for granted because we think, well, I've always had the Holy Spirit since the point of salvation. But Old Testament believers would be astonished incomprehensibly astonished at the blessing of having God himself permanently indwell you. So Solomon is now going to offer a prayer of dedication to God. And it says, by the way, just in advance, at the conclusion of that prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the glory of the Lord filled the house to the point where the priests couldn't even stand to stay near the house because the presence of God Holy God was in his house. The presence of God in your life is both terrifying, it's also very comforting. God's holy presence convicts us of sin, and we need to be forgiven of that sin through Christ. But God's presence also convinces us and convicts us that God wants a relationship with us, which is terribly comforting. So Solomon is now dedicating this temple after seven years of building. He gives some speeches to the nation, but most importantly, he gives a dedicatory prayer to God, and that's what we're going to look at. This is the longest prayer in the Bible. There are multiple extended prayers in the Bible, by the way, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, uh, Daniel 9, David's long prayer, the Lord's prayer, but this is the longest prayer in Scripture. And the core of this prayer is the Mosaic Covenant that was delineated in Deuteronomy 28. By the way, the traditional Jewish posture of prayer was standing with your arms up and your face raised to heaven. That was the traditional Jewish posture of prayer, standing, face elevated, and hands up. Solomon prays while kneeling, and he does have his hands raised to heaven. And this earthly king now, Solomon, is submitting himself to the heavenly king. Pick up the narrative in verse 23, chapter 8, 1 Kings 23. Solomon said, quote, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant my father David. Here's the principle. The God of the Bible is an infinite yet personal God who loves his people and keeps his promises. The God of the Bible is an infinite yet personal God who loves his people and keeps his promises. So in this prayer to God at the dedication of the temple, Solomon begins with praise and adoration. He acknowledges that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is unique there was no one like him on heaven, in the heavens above or on the earth beneath. He declares the doctrine of monotheism, which is the belief that there is only one God. This is the basic tenet of Judaism and Christianity and Islam. All three religions believe in one God. It's known as the Shema. Israel's Shema is the fundamental declaration that God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the Israel Shema, S-H-E-M-A, and it means to hear. It means to hear or listen. It's prayed by devout Jews every morning and every night. It is both a pledge of allegiance and it's a prayer. It acknowledges two things. One, there is only one God. And two, I declare my loyalty and allegiance to this God alone and to no other. The right response to the reality that there is only one God is very simple. The right response is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
which means he alone is worthy of your loyal worship and faithful obedience. Solomon then lists two characteristics of this God, this one God, the only true God, two defining characteristics. He says, first of all, God is unique in that he alone always keeps his covenant. God makes and keeps his promises. He always does what he says he will do. And number two, God shows faithful, loyal love to his servants who obey him with all their hearts. He says, to walk before God with all your heart is to be constantly aware that God's eyes are always on you. That produces very different lifestyle choices than if you are not aware that God's eyes are always on you. Amen? You as parents and grandparents, you watch your children and grandchildren intently, do you not? Because you care, because you love them. God does the same thing. God is a parent and he watches us because he loves us. The important thing is we know that he watches us. It's that when we're aware that he's watching us, we live differently than when we're not aware that he's watching us. Amen? So we need to be aware that wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever we look at, however we behave, God the Holy Spirit goes with you whenever you do whatever you do. Always. It says, walk before you with all your heart. All your heart has to do with 100% obedience, with nothing held back. Solomon asked God to do what he has promised David that he would do. Verse 27. Solomon's praying to God, and he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Verse 28, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to his cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today. Verse 30, Listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, hear and forgive. Here's the principle. God in heaven hears the prayers of his people and forgives their sins when they repent. God in heaven hears the prayers of his people and forgives their sins when they repent. And Solomon is very, very clear that God is infinite and his dwelling place is in heaven and humanity is finite and they dwell on the earth. You know, the, the, this universe of ours is finite, but it is staggeringly large. And the estimates get bigger every year as our measuring devices improve. At this point in time, we think that the edge of the universe, if you start at the center of the universe and you go to the edge, the radius is about 46 billion light years. That would make the current diameter, the width of the universe, by the way, it's expanding, but currently today about 93 billion light years across. Give you some idea of scope. These are very large numbers. The average size galaxy, like our Milky Way, contains about 100 billion stars. Now in the known universe, what we can measure so far, there's an estimated 2 trillion galaxies, which means the number of stars in the universe is about 200 billion trillion. That's 200 with 21 zeros. Some of us can't even count that high, myself included. So that 200 with 21 zeros, 93 billion light years across, Isaiah 40 says that God measures the heavens by the span. The span is the difference between your thumb and your little finger. So God measures the width of the universe, the diameter, 93 billion light years with his thumb and his little finger. You want to know how big God is? He is infinitely large. The reality is that the physical universe, all 93 billion light years across, dwells inside God. Because God is what? Infinite. So his creation is smaller than him. Wrap your head around that one. I think I need another cup of coffee. So God is uncontainable, unlimited, immeasurable, and yet this infinite God is also personal and he condescends to live with humans. Isaiah 66.1 says, Thus says the Lord, 
Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is the place that I might rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. The word of God should be so powerful that it makes you tremble. It should impact your life, your heart. Isaiah 57, 15. For Seth says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God, who inhabits eternity, for whom the entire physical universe lives inside him, he makes his residence not just in heaven, but he makes his residence in the hearts of the humble. He takes up residence in the hearts of humble people. Our Heavenly Father hears every word of every prayer. He also hears every sigh and every tear between every word. Romans 8 tells us that God the Holy Spirit prays for us with what? Groanings too deep for words. So when you're struggling with something and you no longer know even what to ask for, the Holy Spirit knows what you need. The Holy Spirit will intercede for the Father on your behalf, and I take great comfort in that. The most amazing thing is that God the Son reduced himself to human form and was born as a baby in order to save humanity from his sins. Now, Solomon is now going to come to the Lord after having praised him and acknowledged his greatness and the humanity's sinfulness. He's going to ask God for seven things. He's going to make seven requests. And he notes that God's in heaven and people live on earth. And of course, the whole focus of prayer in the Lord's prayer is what? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our prayer is that God's will is perfectly obeyed on earth, just as the angels do in heaven. Solomon is going to consistently go through this common theme that humans' sinful conduct creates painful consequences, and that sin always separates people from God. And Solomon is repeatedly going to ask God, when we sin against you, and when we repent, hear from heaven and forgive, based on the promises that you made to David and based on the promises you made in the Mosaic Covenant. So he, if you go to verse 31 to 32, his first request is, he says, God, humans, we people, we, we, we Israelites, we're going to sin against each other. And we're going to need your forgiveness when we wrong each other. He prays for justice in the land of Israel. He said, God, you're a righteous God, and you justify the righteous, and you condemn the wicked. He said, in Israel, there's going to be disputes between people, and we're going to treat each other badly. God, you're the final arbiter, and you will always judge righteously between people. And the important thing here for us to remember is when we look at the world at large today, how many of you are aware of injustice? It's pretty obvious, and it's becoming more and more unjust. If we fail to remember that God is the ultimate judge of human behavior, we get tempted to become discouraged, or we get tempted to take matters in our own hands. We are going to fix things. We're going to impose justice according to our understanding. And that, of course, always produces sinful behavior. We need to remember that God is in heaven, and this is his world, and he will impose perfect justice. Number two, verses 33 to 34. God, Solomon acknowledges, Lord, there are times we're going to sin against you, and you are going to let us experience military defeat as a consequence of our sin, as a discipline for our sin. And so, Lord, when we are defeated by an enemy due to our sin, if we pray and repent to you, remember your promises to David, remember your promises to Moses, you, God in heaven, forgive us and bring prisoners of war back home. 
Have you noticed that some people refuse to repent until the consequences of their sin come due? God allows us to experience consequences for our sin as an act of mercy. If we sinned and there were no consequences, how would we know to stop? If you have leprosy, you no longer have sensory nerves that work in your hands, your arms, your body. You no longer have pain as a feedback loop. You know what happens then? You bang your foot, you get an infection, and you don't feel anything. That can kill you. Same thing with severe diabetes. I have a number of friends who have that. They don't feel things. So morally, God blesses us with the consequences of sin being painful to give us feedback to say, you need a course change. You need a change of direction. If we sin without consequence, we would continue to sin. So military defeat was one of God's mechanisms of Israel. When they sinned, he allowed them to experience defeat to turn them back. Verses 35 to 36, sometimes they sinned and God brought on a drought as judgment, as consequence. Now, they were an agricultural economy, a pastoral economy, and rainfall was the difference between eating and starving. So if you didn't have rain, which we'll find out in a few weeks, um, you didn't have crops and you didn't eat very well. Matter of fact, sometimes there was just famine and you starved. So that was a discipline from the Lord. And God promised, I will send rain in its season when you repent from your sin. Number three, sometimes they sinned and God said there's a variety of calamities in verse 37 to 40. Solomon lists some of those calamities from sin. Could be famine, could be blight, could be insect invasions, could be plagues, could be sicknesses, could be sieges. And Solomon says, Lord, if any individual in Israel or the nation itself prays sincerely about a specific affliction, I'm asking you to hear and I'm asking you to forgive and I'm asking you to take action and do the right thing. Now, we in our contemporary culture are experiencing an enormous number of God's judgments today. People say, well, if America doesn't straighten up, they're going to experience God's judgments. That's not correct. We are in the middle of experiencing God's judgments now. God in his mercy, you know, brings them on one at a time instead of all at once because he wants us to turn. This is not normal. The world we live in today is not normal. It is not God's design. It is God allowing us to experience the consequences of our sin, painfully so, to encourage us to repent and turn back to him and turn away from our sin. And there are times God's people say, Lord, how bad does it have to be before we turn back? Oh, that's up to your heart. How much pain do you want to suffer before you repent? Then Solomon says, Lord, in verse 41 to 43, I'm asking you to show mercy to God-fearing foreigners who come to play, come to pray before you in this temple. You know, God's people have a missionary mandate. God blesses us in order that we may become a blessing to the world. God's whole point for Israel and for us is that the world would come to know him and be saved by the one true God of the Bible. And God, Solomon asks God, Lord, when a non-Jew, any foreigner, anybody in the world comes before you and prays, we ask that you would hear their prayer because God loved the world and it was obvious that he loved the entire world even back in the Old Testament. Verse 44 to 45, Solomon prays that God would give them victory in battle. When they're fighting the battles, God calls them to fight against their enemies that God would give them victory. And in verse 46 to 53, a pretty big section God says, Lord, or Moses says, Josh, Josh, we'll figure it out sooner or later. Solomon says, Lord, if we sin and we suffer defeat and captivity and we repent, hear our prayer. Let's pick up the narrative of verse 46. When they, Israel, sin against you, for there is no man that does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy, so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, if they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul to the land of their enemies who have taken them captive, and pray to you toward the land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, 
and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and make them objects of compassion before those that have them captive that they may have compassion on them. See, God had told Moses way back in Deuteronomy that Israel was going to worship idols. Israel was going to forsake him and therefore God would bring judgment on them. Solomon is praying a couple hundred years in advance. I don't know whether the Lord revealed to him, but he knows that they're going into captivity due to their sin. And he's praying that, Lord, when they are in captivity, if they genuinely repent and return to you with all their heart, hear from heaven and forgive their sin and bring them back to the land. Verse 59. And may these words of mine, which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, so that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. Here's the principle. God answers prayer so that everyone will know that he alone is God. God answers prayer so that everyone will know that he alone is God. The point of prayer is conversation, which leads to relationship. What does it say? To be near to the Lord our God. That's our point. The whole point of prayer is to draw us closer to the Lord. Solomon wants God to hold his words, his prayers, his conversation, his requests close to God's heart. He desires intimacy with God day and night, and he says, Lord, maintain the cause of your people Israel. God the Creator wants his creatures to know who he is. God wants his creatures to have a relationship with the one who created them. The whole point of the nation of Israel was God wanted the world to see what a nation looked like who lived under the government of God. Israel's purpose was to be a nation of what? Priests. A priest is a mediator. A priest goes between people, between God and man most often. Mediates. God blessed Israel so they would be a blessing to the world. Why do you think God blesses us? Same thing. God doesn't bless us so we can hoard it. God doesn't bless us so we can think we're special and no one else is. God blesses us in order for us to be a blessing. We are not to hoard them, but share them. We have the privilege and responsibility to share with the world who God is and how they can have a relationship with him in the same we do. And it says, as each day requires. I'm interested that Solomon said, Lord, give us what we need as each day requires. God knows what we need each day. By the way, I didn't know a week ago I needed the detached retina. Apparently, God knew I needed the detached retina. Duh! If he didn't know, I wouldn't have it. Right? Say yes. yes. That's true for anything and everything. There are no accidents in God's kingdom. Everything is by his loving design. And if he blessed me with a detached retina, that is a blessing because he's my heavenly father. He doesn't do anything that is not in my best interest. Ever. And this is the third time I had the conversation. It says, Lord, if you want me to go blind in an eye, these are your eyes. By the way, some of you are saying, this is your prostate. I'm not being rude. He owns it all. Yes? Yes. And sometimes when we get old enough and we start losing our memory, you will say, Lord, this brain that is developing dementia belongs to you. It all belongs to him. It's just that we forget. We think we own it. We don't own anything. We just manage it for a short period of time, right? Jesus taught us to pray what? Give us this day our daily bread. Now, we don't like that. We'd rather have a few freezers full. So we say, Lord, give us our weekly bread. Uh, how about our monthly bread? You know, I mean, you know, how often did God give the Jews manna in the wilderness? Every morning, six days. He only gave them two days the day before Shabbat, Sabbath. That's when he gave them enough manna for two days. God generally leads us one day 
at a time. You know, if God, if God showed us what was going to happen in the next year, I want you to go back in your mind. Look at the last 12 months. If 12 months ago God had showed you everything that was going to happen in the next 12 months, most of us would freak out. I'm being kind. Number one, we'd argue with him that we didn't like his plan. Number two, we'd say, let's make a deal. What is it going to take for you to change that plan? I do not like that plan. I want you to change it. So he doesn't show us his plans in advance. He says, trust me today. And by the way, even if I agreed with God's plans, if he told me a year in advance, I would say, okay, I got it. Now, I'm going to figure out how to make it happen. See, I would depend on my strength to fulfill his plans. Now, that is foolishness. We not only have to pray for God's will to be done, we pray for his power to carry out his plans. God's plans depend on his power. None of us can carry out God's plans for us in our own strength. So it's not enough to say, thy will be done. We say, thy will be done. We say, Lord, I need your power to be obedient to carry out the plans that you have for me. And he will give it to you one day at a time. That's one reason we're commanded to do what? Pray without ceasing. Now, God responds to Solomon's prayer request in 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 7, 14, very famous passage. God says to Solomon in response to his request, if my people, it's you and me, who are called by my name will do four things, four things, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll do three things. I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and heal our land. And see, we today, as Christians, we crowd, God, our land needs healing, we are such a wreck, and God says, it's up to you, my people. It's not up to the pagans. It's up to you, my people. You need to pray, seek my face, and turn from your wicked ways. The church turned from its wicked ways. God's people Repent. Then God hears, forgives, heals the land. So the only way we can accomplish God's purpose for our lives is to devote ourselves fully to him. Look at verse 61. Let your heart, therefore, be fully devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes, to keep his commandments as it is this day. Here's the principle. The right response to God, to the Lord our God, is wholehearted love and obedience. Now, Yahweh is the covenant name, the Hebrew covenant name, the personal name for God. Adonai is another name for God, which means Lord. The word Lord means owner and master. Since God is the owner and master of everything, we are to be wholly devoted to him alone. The word holy means completely, totally, without reservation, fully, undivided. Devoted means dedicated, loyal, fervent. There's an old hymn, I Surrender Some. You ever sang that one? <laughs> I surrender some, and tomorrow I might change my mind, and I might make it a little bit less, right? I surrender all. I suggest that you think very carefully before you sing that song, because the Lord will take you up on that. On six separate occasions, the Holy Spirit recorded in the Bible that Caleb followed the Lord his God fully completely with his whole heart. God describes, God himself describes Caleb with these words, Numbers 14, 24. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. Now this different spirit seems to refer to the Holy Spirit. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit, but Caleb every single day still chose to follow the Lord his God fully. What is utterly intriguing to me is there's two million Israelites at Kadesh Barnea and only two of them followed the Lord fully. Joshua and Caleb. That's one in a million. Wow. Everyone else doubted God, refused to follow God into the wilderness. Fully means wholeheartedly, completely, and it implies being a person of one thing. 
Paul said what? Philippians 3. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's entire life was about one thing, knowing Christ Jesus is Lord. He left everything else behind. He was not complacent in his current relationship with Christ. He continually wanted to grow in his experiential knowledge of Christ. He was reaching forward, pressing against the sin that held him back, the encumbered him, the things that distracted him. By the way, pressing on means holy sweat. You do not grow in Christ without sweat. It's the hardest work you'll ever do. So is marriage, but it's also the most joyful work you'll ever do. David shared the same concept. David said what? Psalm 27.4. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. David understood it's not enough to plan to follow God. It's not enough to pray to follow God. You actually need to press. You need to pray. You need to pursue. You need to sweat. You need to turn it into muscle and bone. Intention must turn into action. I'm going to make a statement that you might stone me for, but I'm going to say it anyway. Right now, every one of you in this room have exactly as much relationship with God as you want. Jesus gave us everything at the cross. He held nothing back. He gave us all of himself. You can't get more of Jesus. The question is, how much of you does he have? That's a daily commitment. Romans 12.1 says what? I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. They're talking about burnt offerings. A burnt offering consumed the entire animal. Nothing was withheld. If you brought a burnt offering to the Lord in the Old Testament and said, Lord, I am giving you 100% of me. I'm committing myself completely and entirely to you. And Paul says, the Holy Spirit says through Paul in Romans 12 too, you are the sacrifice. Get on the altar. And I'm really good at getting off the altar. I say, Lord... I surrender all. And 10 minutes later, it's like, well, except that leg, I'm going to get that off the altar, you know, or this arm or whatever. It's staying on the altar and saying, Lord, I commit myself, I surrender myself to you. So we have Caleb, Paul, and David were wholly devoted to God, and they pursued God passionately. So you say, well, how do you do that? Well, first of all, if you're not saved you don't have the Holy Spirit in you to prompt you to do that. If you are saved, you have the power in you because you have the Holy Spirit. But you still have to exercise your free will and do that. For most of us, it's going to be very practical. It means turning off your electrical devices. It means stopping our distracting attention deficit disorder lifestyles. It means setting aside quiet time to be alone with Jesus every single day. <laughs> I can attest to you that God has ways of slowing you down. <laughs> and I did listen to a lot of podcasts, but there were a lot of days I laid flat on the floor with my face on a pillow, and God says, that's the correct position for you to be flat before me. It is utterly amazing what it's like to have six days of quiet. Just you and Jesus. I highly recommend it. I wouldn't tear a retina to do it. <laughs> but you can carve out time to be alone with him. If you want to hear God speak... It means we need to shut off the noise. Satan's primary agenda is to say, you can pursue God, but do it later because right now you need to listen to this great thing or watch this great thing. And so it's a question of delaying. At some point in time, we just need to be still and know that I am God, which means be quiet and surrender yourself to listen to his voice. Jesus said what? If you love me, you will obey me. 
Now, Solomon has spent the bulk of this prayer saying, Lord, you're a faithful God. You've made promises to us. We are going to sin against you because we're sinners. And based on your promise to hear and forgive, when we repent, we're calling out to you in repentance and ask that you demonstrate your mercy and your forgiveness to us. And of course, God the Father always does that because he's a loving, faithful God. And he sent Jesus the Son in order to pay the penalty for our sin. And then he sent us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to prompt us to do that on a 24-hour basis. So let's summarize. First of all, the greatest gift God gives us is his presence. We ask God for all these wonderful things. Oh, Lord, please heal us. Oh, God, please fix that. Oh, God, I give you my broken heart. All of those things are important. You bring all of you to your heavenly Father. Every day you pour out your heart and you say, Lord, here I come again and I'm broken and I'm beat up and I don't have answers and I'm confused and I'm frustrated and I'm angry and I'm hurt. You bring all that to the Lord. And you know what his solution is? Himself. Himself. Number two. The God of the Bible is an infinite yet personal God who loves his people and keeps his promises. We need to remember that. He is a heavenly father who knows what we need and he knows when we need it and he will always do what is right because he's a father, your father. Number three, God in heaven, infinite heaven, hears the prayers of his people and he forgives their sins when they repent. Repentance draws you closer to the Lord. Refusal to repent puts a barrier between you and the Lord. Number four, God answers prayer so that everyone will know that he alone is God. You know, we think, God, you should answer my prayer because I'm so special and you deserve me an answer. God does answer your prayer because you are his child and it's an expression of his love. But he also answers prayer so that the people around you, that their faith would be strengthened, that God is God. And lastly, the right response to the Lord our God is wholehearted love and obedience. We've covered a lot today. We'll take up the parable next week, Lord willing, continue in the life of Solomon. It is good to see you, so to speak. You are fuzzy, but I know you're there. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.